We're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. This feels very uh, Sermon on the Mount like right here. Uh, I'm not calling myself Jesus. Just saying, other rabbis did that too. This is kind of a fun thing. I did not get to think that this would be my experience in 2020. I did not have 2020 vision for this, but you got that. Um, Let's read it. I'm going to read through uh, uh, verse 1, and we'll read through verse 5. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, My joy and crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness, the NIV I think actually gets us better, let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that we would not look over these verses as just a simple side chat to a specific pair, but we'd actually see that in this, I think you have one of the most important messages, not only the book of Philippians, but also to the church, particularly the church in the West and the American church. And so, Lord, I pray that um, we would live out these verses of like Yodia and Syntyche being like-minded through disagreements, through continuing to wrestle and grow in wisdom, to continuing to build the kingdom together. I pray that we would not avoid conflict, but rather we would have a covenant family relationship that is not broken by conflict, is not eroded by conflict, but is strengthened and made by conflict. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So these verses almost feel like a throwaway if you're just reading them out of context. If you're just like picking up Philippians, you just pick up chapter four and you just like get to the point where you see you're talking to Yodia and Syntyche, agree in the Lord, help these women who've labored. It seems like, again, Paul's just talking to like these specific people. But I would argue that this is in some ways the context for the entire letter of the book of Philippians. So here's the context of what's going on. You have Yodia and Syntyche are two women that are most likely leaders in the church. They probably lead out, uh, instruct in some way, and at some point, we don't know exactly what, but a conflict arises. They have beef with each other, and this is no small matter. We know that because Paul wrote this in the letter to the Philippian church. These letters were read, read in public. Epaphroditus would stand up like I am right now, and read this to a group of you, like you're sitting here now, and it would all of a sudden say, Yodia and Syntyche, be like-minded. That Paul, that the, one of the most expensive things to do was to write on parchment 
in the in the in this time. Every word they put on here is thought about, is worked through with a scribe. I mean, there's this is not a cheat process. And so the fact that Paul's committing a portion of this letter so that in public he'd have these two women hearing what's going on and saying, this is very important to me, that you guys actually come to an agreement through this is a big deal. Not only that, it's most likely, again, the context of why Paul writes Philippians because it uses the same language as Philippians chapter 2. Uh, be like-minded in Christ. Be of the same mind as me as you make yourself low to serve one another. And he says similarly, hey, Yodia, Syntyche, I want you to be of the same mind. He's calling back to one of the biggest themes of unity throughout the entire letter. And I think ultimately what that has to regularly remind us of and call us to is that church, what, however you conceptualize the church, however you think of it, it has to first and foremost be family. And family is not eroded by conflict. Family is not broken by conflict. Family ultimately is made by conflict. I think of the concept of the book... Um, Anti-fragile. It's a, I think it's a business book. I mean, it's essentially writing about the idea that there's like three different kinds of organizations or groups. You can have a fragile organization, which is obviously just something that, you know, a small startup, a young church plant, something like that, where it's just like a couple things go wrong and that thing's toast. Or you can have something that is a strong organization. This is like a large company, a large mega church or something like that, something that a strong would take a lot. However, we've seen both in mega churches and in big companies, they can actually be taken down because they're not what the author calls for is anti-fragile. Anti-fragile being that hardships don't break the company, the group, the organization, the group of people, the family, but they actually are what form them together. We talk about this in our marriage counseling that we have a whole week when we talk to like premarital of like how to fight because if you think like the idea of like marriage is like we need to get to the point that we don't fight you will be sorely disappointed marriages are the one thing that they necessarily have to do is have conflict i mean in proverbs it talks about that Sharp, uh, you know, sharpening one Christian to another is like iron sharpening iron, which is like a cute coffee mug verse that means that it hurts to be in conflict and to grow in Christ's likeness together. It is painful to have to forgive somebody who hurts you, who thinks less of you, who puts themselves above you. But there is no other way to think of church other than a family who is consistently growing together in Christ's likeness by being of the same mind. The only deal, though, that we have to get over is we intrinsically deal with conflict in the American church by we bolt. Maybe we stick around for a little bit. Maybe we switch small groups. Maybe we kind of like shuffle the deck a little bit. But eventually, if conflict persists, we suddenly feel called somewhere else. It's funny because Paul is going to write in every single letter about some conflict that's happening amongst the believers. In Corinthians, 
in the Roman church. I mean, the, book, the entire book of Romans is based on Jews and Gentiles getting along together. And so every single time he picks up pen to parchment, he's going to talk about conflict. And he's never once going to suggest, maybe you guys just go your separate ways. And people talk about like, well, there was only one church in a city. Like that wasn't really possible. Actually, a lot of times there were multiple house churches. There were networks of relationships. It would be very easy for Paul to say, Yodia, Sentiki, go to different house churches. Put this to rest by just not talking to each other anymore because you're causing too much division. Paul, every, all 13 letters talks about conflict, never gives that suggestion once. Instead, he's going to come to things like Philippians 4 of Yodia, Sentiki, be of the same mind. He even asks for other people in the community to be a part of the conflict. He says, to my true companion, which some people think that that actually should be uh, translated to a proper name, uh, that the word uh, Caesargist is like the word true, and so maybe it like actually was a name. It's less likely there's no appearance of that name in all of Greek literature, so it would be the one and only time. I mean, this would be like uh, the unique millennial namings of kids now, but uh, it would be less likely that that's the case. Some people say that maybe he's just calling, like saying to, hey, my one true companion, help these women out and make sure that they, uh, they come together because he's just like trying to get by the bystander effect. Like he just says like, hey, my one true companion, kind of hoping that every single person listening would be thinking like, maybe he's talking to me. Maybe I should be involved. I hung out with Paul that one time he was in town. Uh, most people think that likely... He's talking to someone who knows who they are, probably Luke, Timothy, or Epaphroditus himself. And he's saying, hey, you should step in and help mediate the conversation. It's not a sense of like, well, that's their problem. That's their business. Church is family. And so if there's a disagreement in the body anywhere, there's a disagreement everywhere. It doesn't mean that we have to come in and be like, sassy junior counselors and pretend like we know best how to mediate conflict. But it does mean that you can listen to someone and hear their conflict with someone. You can empathize with them. You can care what they have to say. And then, thanks man. <laughs> you can use that umbrella somebody if you want to. You can care what they have to say and then eventually... Maybe not even in the first conversation, you can say, and now we need to work on forgiving them. And now we need to work on having unity together. That it's not just a continual, I don't like to deal with conflict, I just want to be the person who always is the shoulder to cry on. That's a great place to be. Again, be there, listen, empathize, and then lovingly call your brother and sister to unity. Because Paul just says, like, there's something intrinsic to Christianity, to you guys being able to get over differences. He says the whole, we look across the whole world, it's marked by the concept of if you have a difference with someone, you blow them up on social media, or you, like, publicly denounce them, or you use that as, like, a soundbite or something like that. You don't try to work out and be of the same mind in differences. But Paul says, if you believe in Jesus, call back to chapter two. If you believe in Christ, 
who lays down his life for his enemies, then intrinsically, if you are filled with the same spirit of Jesus, you should have something in you that is able to lay down your own preferences for somebody else. You should have something that is able to humble yourself and ask for forgiveness, even when it's not entirely your fault. Even when you maybe don't even share the lion's share of the blame if you were to break it down in percentages. Maybe it's not your fault at all, but simply to preserve unity, you are going to go to your brother and sister and have the conversation. And yes, hold them accountable to if they are in sin, hold them accountable to if something is broken that they need to grow in Christ. But then also saying, maybe I'm going to let this one go and I'm going to absorb this for the sake of unity. Ultimately, you have to learn to do this. I, let, me, let me take that back. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I'm going to get to the end quick. Uh, <laughs> you don't have to learn to do this. There is an entire church industry in America that says you don't have to learn how to do this. But let me ask this. What are we missing? Like, what is the American church missing? Because we don't have to work it out. Because we don't have to deal with the bitterness. Hold on, Gabby. Yeah, come grab that. There we go. Yeah, come grab this stuff. So yeah, as a church, what do we what do we have uh, what are we missing that we don't have to figure this out? That we don't have to deal with the fact that I need to eventually humble myself and submit to the fact that I am in Christ and therefore I can absorb your I can absorb your sin or I can absorb this conflict. Because ultimately, if you don't deal with this, you can stoke the flames of bitterness, but at the end of the day, A, you don't get to be master of the flame. That thing will burn you out and leave you out a hollowed out shell. And B, so Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I referenced last week, he writes two big works. One is Cost of Discipleship, which I mentioned last week. Um, this week, I want to bring up his other one, Light Together. In Light Together, he writes about community and that basically says Westerners never really get at community in a deep way because we merely just continue to shift communities whenever community gets hard. And so he says, we never actually get the experience of feeling actually known and actually loved because the moment you know someone enough that you have to actually love them, which means that they're not easy to love, you bolt or they bolt on you. And so he says, we just continually go from community to community to community, continually shifting up and continually working up like the hardest part, which is like the first Honestly, nine-ish, ten years of being in a relationship with someone, most marriages claim that they got their stride at either eight or year nine of marriage. Most divorces happen in year seven. And so basically you go all the way up the hill and then you cut the cord and you try working up the hill with somebody else because it's more fun to start over. But it's maybe more important to continue on. And so ultimately with community, with the... Uh, 
with Bonhoeffer's call of saying, hey, find a community and just be there through hell or high water, through good or bad, through I enjoy being here and it's bringing me all this good sentimental feelings in the Lord and I hate these people. But yet I feel like I am called in the spirit of God to lay down myself and to make myself less than. Because maybe if I hate these people, yes, I can change the people and maybe in a few years, I'm going to hate that group of people too. Because the common denominator in the situation is not the exterior, it's the interior. And so I'd say this, just to end here. Ultimately, what this should call us to is that church, particularly members of the church, you should be a really hard out. You should be a very slow to go. We should be, if there's disagreements between you and the church, you and another, we should be having a series of conversations over months or years with the attempt not to say, this is what I think and therefore I'm going, but rather to say, can we find unity in this? Can we figure out how we can agree in this? If we can't figure out how we agree on this, can we discover that maybe, yes, we will never agree on this, but ultimately it's not worth breaking unity and fellowship over because there's something bigger we're missing in the American church because we just continue to say, well, I didn't fully 100% agree with these people, so now I'm called over here for a couple more years until I find something over here. And so it should be months if not years of attempting to seek unity and yes maybe there's a time where eventually we just decide there's a time and a place to say bless you and go and build the kingdom elsewhere but you should be a really hard out if you're not a member Jordan Easley that's right I keep track then you should seek to put your yes fully on the table. And it's not because of it's some organizational means. It's just the simple fact that like, it is the members who me and now the other pastors are regularly looking through, reaching out to, praying for. And if you bolt, we will figure it out eventually. We've been slow to do that in the past, mainly because sometimes people travel like six weeks or like if we're only attend six weeks out of the year, traveled for a couple and said like, well, I didn't come a couple of the weeks that I was in town uh, and you didn't notice I was gone. Yeah, it was kind of hard. But uh, regardless, if you're a member, that's still to our shame. That's still to the church's leadership shame. We should be pursuing you and knowing you that we know if you fall off the map because when you hit pain and when you hit suffering and when you hit life going sideways on you, you tend to isolate. And that's why you need the church ready to pursue you. You need a group of people saying, I am all in with you and they are all in with me. And then once you do, you become a hard out. That you don't, aren't surprised when we come and have these conversations if all of a sudden you bolt and say, wait a second, how can we seek to be of the same mind? That doesn't mean we perfectly agree. 
it doesn't mean that everything that the Spirit's calling you to, He's calling me to in carbon copy. But it means that we have like-mindedness in Christ who lays down His life for another, making others more important than Himself, taking on obedience of death, even death on a cross, for the sake of being family together. Church should be family. It should be covenant. We should be brothers and sisters. It's not that different here in Philippians. These people, Paul's writing persuasively because they have the ability to walk away. But he says, hey, the most important thing is that you continually come back, come together, because there's something fundamental that we miss to our discipleship in Jesus when we continually switch the scenery. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that, again, we would be a family, as some would downtown. That we would be groups of people that would be seeking after one another, that would be laying down burdens for one another, that would be picking up burdens for one another, and laying down pride for one another. That we would be seeking to be in relationship before that we are uh, an organization, Lord. We are brothers and sisters coming together to be in relationship and family together. And Lord, I thank you for those who have continued to walk alongside us year after year. And yes, geography changes things. But for those who are still in the city are saying, hey, our, our, we are all in here. Our yes is fully on the table. Through the good times and the bad, through sunny days and rain spilling in Gabby's guitar. And so, Lord, I pray that we would have a proclivity, a stubborn unity to seek like-mindedness together, to grow into the image of you. In Jesus' name, amen.